So does the Trump team flinch every time the doorbell rings? The lead starts right now. Donald Trump has been told he's a target of a federal investigation ahead of what could be his next legal fight, a possible indictment. We are in uncharted waters, people, and a shifting hazard. If you don't have to be outside, then don't be outside. That's the mayor of Washington, D.C. Dangerous thick smoke from Canadian wildfires is moving south. Major cities in the U.S. are elevating their alerts as air quality is getting worse. Plus, new Russian aggression on the battlefield, the significant losses for Ukraine as Ukrainian forces try to breach enemy lines. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper, and we're going to start today with our law and justice lead. Donald Trump is gathering with his top aides and reaching out to allies on Capitol Hill ahead of possible criminal charges. Criminal charges being filed against him. Sources say the Justice Department recently told Trump's legal team that the former president is a target in the federal investigation into the possible mishandling of classified documents after he left office and, of course, possible obstruction of justice charges related to those documents. The lead prosecutor in the case, John Harbach, there he is, seen at the federal courthouse in Miami today where a grand jury has heard witness testimony just this week. CNN has also learned another key witness was interviewed by prosecutors earlier this year, a former official who was in charge of advising both the Trump and the Obama administrations on how to properly declassify materials. As CNN's Paula Reed reports for us now, this testimony can undercut Trump's claims that he automatically declassified every document he took to his Florida resort, sometimes just using his mind. Mr. Harbach, were you with the witness in front of the grand jury? Special counsel prosecutor John Harbach refusing to answer questions about a possible Trump indictment outside the federal court in Miami today. The Justice Department recently informed the former president he is a target of a federal investigation into the possible mishandling of classified documents, multiple sources tell CNN. We don't have any comments sure. today. The news comes just days after his lawyers met with special counsel Jack Smith and other officials at the main justice building in Washington, D.C. A source tells CNN that beyond initial greetings, Smith did not say a word during the meeting. But the target letter is a clear sign that prosecutors are looking at Trump, not just those around him, and gives him the option to give his side to the grand jury if he chooses. It does suggest an indictment is kind of coming down the pike. He's currently hunkered down at his Bedminster, New Jersey golf club with some of his closest aides. And reacting on social media, saying, I have assumed for years that I am a target of the weaponized DOJ and FBI. CNN reporting exclusively that a former White House official in charge of advising the Trump administration on declassification told federal prosecutors Trump knew the proper process and followed it while in office, a claim supported by one of his own lawyers. He is aware of a bureaucratic process that can be used. He used that bureaucratic process in the middle of his, of his presidency. But out of step no with Trump's documents. public comments. And by the way, they become automatically declassified when I took them. Trump's former lawyer, sure. Tim Parlatori, who recently left the Trump remember. team amid these, infighting, these revealed Wednesday that he has heard the bombshell audio recording of Trump discussing what he says is a classified document. I was aware of the audio uh, tape. But downplayed its significance. It's certainly not even clear what he's, what he's specifically talking about. 
Special counsel prosecutors are also still calling witnesses in the January 6th probe, including Steve Bannon, who was recently subpoenaed to testify about the events in and around the insurrection. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. Just understand this. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. And the Bannon subpoena, Jake, it's an important reminder that it appears that the special counsel's dual investigations are just on different timetables. It appears that the January 6th investigation could go on for several more months as they're still subpoenaing witnesses. We know they're still having even just informal interviews with some key witnesses. And right now, what we're watching and waiting for are potential charges in the Mar-a-Lago documents investigation. All right, Paula Reed, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Let's discuss all this. Uh, we have with us uh, Tom Dupree, who served as the principal deputy assistant attorney general under President George W. Bush. We also have with us CNN's Christian Holmes and, of course, uh, Abby Phillip. Um, Tom, walk us through what we could see uh, play out here if charges are filed. How would we even know? Well, I think we will know fairly soon after they are filed. Uh, it doesn't have to be instantaneous, but I would certainly anticipate within 24 hours. Maybe not terribly different from what we saw happen in New York. Uh, it does appear that the Trump team is ready for this. He is behaving like a man who anticipates being indicted in the next 48 to 72 hours. He's gathered his forces in Bedminster. He's got his team around them. He's making public statements. His lawyer met with the Justice Department. All the indicators suggest that the Trump team thinks an indictment is imminent. The only person who knows for certain, though, of course, is Jack Smith, and he's keeping his cards close to the vest. How much information do you think would be contained in the indictment? Would they lay out substantial evidence? I, th- I think they would. I mean, it, look, in a case like this, I think it would be very peculiar, to say the least, for Jack Smith to file an indictment at, you know, a 30,000-foot level where he says, I found evidence of obstruction of justice, evidence to follow. I think he's got to include specific allegations. He's got to put some of the evidence, maybe all of his evidence that he's gathered to date in that indictment, at least to give the public confidence that this is not a fishing expedition. This is not a political prosecution. This is a prosecution based on the rule of law and on the evidence that he's gathered. And in that way, it might be that the New York case in which he, uh, Trump was indicted on a separate matter might be instructive. I mean, the DOJ will not say that. They don't want to say that any of these things play into this. But uh, in that case, some of the, uh, the details uh, were left out and were a left, lot. A lot of the details were <laughs> left out and left to be sorted out in the courtroom. It will be critical whether or not these uh, documents that come with a possible indictment are detailed enough and specific enough uh, to support the charges. And uh, from a political perspective, I think that many Republicans, and you heard this from Mike Pence last night with with Dan Abash at the town hall, they are going to defend Trump until they are forced to not to, to to not defend him. And uh, what will make that change happen is if the evidence that is available to the public in a charging phase is incredibly significant. So we will see if that happens. And take us behind the scenes right now with Donald Trump and his team. What's going through their minds? What are they doing? Well, look, for the last several weeks, Trump had been telling people around him, asking them really, do they think he's going to get indicted? That shifted in the last several days. Now he is saying he believes that he is likely to be indicted. And it's not just him. His team believes that as well. They are bracing themselves for this. They actually believe he'll be indicted likely in this case as well as the Georgia probe. However, they're not just sitting around waiting for it to happen now. They are actually trying to do, as we're talking about, get Republicans out there to defend them. They are calling their allies on the Hill. They want those staunch supporters on the airwaves talking about how this is a political persecution, how this is election interference. And Donald Trump himself is actually making some of these calls. He is talking to some of these representatives on the Hill, telling them how he feels, telling him about this indictment. So they believe that they are ready for this, but they also still don't really have any sort of 
plan in place once it happens? I mean, we are all in uncharted territory. And I do want to note, even though they are saying that they believe that this is imminent, they have no real reason to believe that other than what we've all seen. I mean, this is all the testimony of Mark Meadows, the target letter. They are not getting any kind of heads up from the Department of Justice at this point. If this does happen, if the indictment happens relatively soon, let's say in the next couple of weeks, um, would there be a trial before the 2024 election? I think there would be. Absolutely. I think there would be. Uh, I think it's certainly in the Justice Department's interest to get it over with sooner rather than later. Uh, President Trump, it's a closer question, but I do think ultimately it would be in his interest to litigate it before the election, too. Uh, The other interesting thing is I think the timing of this, how this plays out, there will be a big difference if the special counsel elects to prosecute in Washington. Because if I'm the Trump defense team and he charges me in Washington, I will tie that up in litigation for months saying this should be done in Florida. That may be one reason why the special counsel, if he indicts in Florida, decided to do it there, where the jury pool would be less favorable, but he can move things along much quicker. So you can really divide Republicans right now into two groups. One is the group like Chris Christie and Asa Hutchinson, who are basically along the lines of, like, he he brought this on himself. And if if he's found guilty, he should be disqualified from being the nominee, etc. And then you have every other Republican... Uh, Nikki Hale. Well, we don't know what Nikki Haley's going to land, but Mike Pence included uh, Ron DeSantis, who are saying this is all political. The Justice Department is political. How strong do you think the evidence has to be to get the DeSantis's and the Pence's to be like, well, this is looks really bad? First of all, I think it's it's going to be a little bit hard to say. One of the th- interesting things about this case is that we don't know quite a lot, it seems, uh, especially based on some of the very little. reporting. Yeah. We know very little. I also think that uh, you, even among the sort of Trump defenders camp, you will probably have to subdivide those those people, too, because I, I can see a Mike Pence uh, taking a look at the evidence on the national security issue, I could see this of Nikki Haley as well. These are some of the candidates who are trying to position themselves as foreign policy hawks. And at the at the heart of this case, this documents case, we know based on our reporting, at least one of the documents involved a document that pertains to national security, potential plans that have to do with an attack on Iran. So there may very well be a very strong national security component there that might uh, have much more of an effect on a Nikki Haley and a Mike Pence than it would on a Ron DeSantis who uh, wants to be on the sort of populist right of Donald Trump and uh, might want to downplay some of those things because um, he doesn't want to be seen as more hawkish than Trump on things like that. We'll see. But to, to me, uh, one of the through lines of all of this, the, the top secret nature of some of these documents is going to be the degree to which these documents are sensitive and significant to national security and how carelessly they were handled and the why of it all. Why would former President Trump want to hold on to them and not give them back? So a big uh, uh, theme of Donald Trump's candidacy the first time 2016 uh, was grievance. Here are all the things that are wrong with this country. Now it really has, in 2020 and, and 2024, it looks like, turned to persecution. I am being persecuted. Obviously, he is already trying to turn this, uh, these pending possible indictments, as well as the, the case in New York, uh, into an asset. Uh, we can run some of the sound of campaign ad, uh, which even features a special counsel, uh, Jack Smith, as well uh, as uh, there's Jack Smith with the beard, there's Mueller, there's Alvin Bragg. Uh, this is part of... A campaign ad, uh, literally. Um, this is, I mean, this is their main talking point right now. It is. And I go back to when Trump did his first rally in Texas of 2024, and he was right as the Manhattan 
indictment was looming. And, and if you listen to the speech, it was essentially all grievances, how everyone was out to get him. It was, it was a very dark speech. It wasn't problems, as you said, with America. It was problems that were facing him and that he is the voice for all of the people and he's actually just standing in their way. You right. know, that they're attacking the, the Trump MAGA voters, but he's the one who's in front of them and so he's taking all the incoming hits. So that is a big theme of this. And that is also, you know, as we know, that's why he's calling these allies. He wants them out there saying this too, talking about how this is election interference. At, that's not going to end. And they believe and Trump himself is in a part of his campaign that believes that this is going to help him, that this is going to give him a boost in those poll numbers, that this is going to increase his fundraising dollars. Now, I do also want to point out there are some very senior advisors to Trump who I have talked to who do not believe that this is a good thing. They think this is actually a terrible thing. Of course it's and, not. And, and even if it ends up okay, there's a lot of concern that, that this is not going to help him in a general well, look, election. He, he, escaped, he escaped two, two impeachments, or at least two conviction votes. He's, I mean, it's but, still but, his place in history, and, and a lot of suburban know, voters turned off. There's short-term and there's long-term. He may fundraise. He may rally the a Republican base. But it is a bad thing to be indicted. That's just a fact. And on top of that, (laughs) in my world, it's bad to be indicted. But on top of that, I mean, he was impeached once um, and he lost the presidential race. Like, let's not forget that part of it. In In parts of Trump world, I don't believe he lost, but he did lose that election. And so the serious people in Trump's orbit understand the challenges that this would present to them. And they they're taking it seriously for that. reason. Well, and, and particularly just one thing to note here is that the people around him who are building this campaign this time around, they know that, that Trump needs to broaden his base mm-hmm. if he's going to win. This is obviously not something that's going to help with that effort. Why would they think that if he won the last time? That doesn't make any sense. <laughs> all right. Moving on. Thanks one and all. Appreciate it. And another presidential candidate without the legal drama has launched his own bid for president. You'll know his name, maybe Cornell West. We're going to hear his pitch when he joins me later this hour. Also, wildfire smoke seeping further south. How long the hazardous haze will be an issue for some of the biggest cities along the east coast of the United States. Plus, today's Supreme Court ruling that specifically sides with black voters in Alabama. In our health lead now, the source of all that east coastern United States smoke, more than 430 wildfires that are burning right now up north in Canada. The hazardous smoke caused by these Canadian fires is creating this ominous and apocalyptic orange haze throughout the New York region. And now that nearly inescapable smoke is smothering other locales, such as Philadelphia, Baltimore, here in Washington, D.C. So thick, the smoke, it's seeping into buildings, into transit systems. CNN's Brian Todd reports for us now from the nation's capital, where the air conditions are so bad, officials say it is unhealthy for everyone. Thick haze rolling into the mid-Atlantic today, causing more health warnings and scattered cancellations. Around 75 million Americans now under air quality alerts as the smoke from Canada's wildfires continues to move south. Philadelphia, Baltimore and D.C. showing readings today that ranged from very unhealthy in purple to even hazardous in maroon. Getting off the metro, was, I felt like I couldn't really breathe, catch my breath. This is much thicker than I was expecting. I was very surprised by how hazy it is. Um, I'm a little worried, I'm not going to lie. The Washington Nationals baseball game postponed. Horse racing at New York's Belmont Park canceled. Zoos closed in D.C. and New York. D.C. and Baltimore parks suspending outdoor recreation. There will be no track practice, no outdoor sporting events, any of that uh, through, through Friday. 
Schools in D.C. and some suburbs canceling outdoor recess and sports. A few school districts in the Northeast closing schools entirely. A brief ground stop at New York's LaGuardia Airport this morning, as well as flight delays at Newark and Philadelphia. The advice from authorities there, wear a mask if you have to go out. If you don't have to be outside, then don't be outside. At greatest risk, those with respiratory problems, as well as senior citizens, children, and those who are pregnant. But even if you're healthy... This is like smoking. And so its cumulative exposure is going to put people at greatest risk, even if they're healthy at baseline. Over the next 48 hours, the smoke is forecast to continue spreading south. But compared to yesterday, New York City today seeing some signs of improvement. We may see continued improvements later tonight and overnight. But could this happen more often? With increasing climate change and increasing warming, uh, we can expect more and more of these kind of wildfires to continue. And we can give you a really good visual of how thick the smoke and haze is here in the D.C. area. We're going to zoom past where I am at the Iwo Jima Memorial in Arlington, where on a normal day, in a straight line, you can see very clearly the monuments in Washington. But look, in the haze here, you can barely see. Well, you can see the Lincoln Memorial better now than you could a few hours ago. Then even further behind it, the Washington Monument. And then if we zoom in even tighter, you can barely make out the U.S. Capitol in the background. But I can tell you, Jake, a couple of hours ago, that Capitol was not visible at all. We're told that uh, relief, really serious relief in the Washington, D.C. area may not come until the end of the weekend, if not later. Jake. All right. Uh, Brian Todd at the Iwo Jima Memorial in Arlington. Thanks so much. Coming up, what U.S. officials describe as a significant loss for Ukraine after trying to make a run on Russian forces. Stay with us. And topping our world lead uh, this afternoon at the White House, British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak thanked the United States for its steadfast support for Ukraine, nearly a year and a half into the biggest ground war in Europe since World War II. The UK is proud of our contribution, including providing tanks, long-range weapons, and training Ukrainian soldiers. But let no one doubt, U.S. leadership and resources are the decisive contribution allowing the forces of democracy and freedom to prevail. CNN's Jim Shudo joins us now with new reporting. And Jim, despite all of this support for Ukraine from the West, U.S. officials tell you that Ukraine has been suffering significant losses on the battlefield. Uh, Show us where. That's right. Significant losses and meeting stiffer-than-expected Russian resistance. This taking place in an initial push here around Bakhmut, Ukrainian forces pushing towards these Russian-controlled territories. Now, to be clear, this was always expected to be difficult. Why? Because Russian forces are dug in in multiple lines, sometimes two, three, four deep. In addition to that, this is a literal minefield. They've been planting mines for months. They've had a long time to prepare. And those Ukrainian forces being met, not, not just with those minefields, but also shoulder-fired weapons, mortars, grenades, etc. And that's been responsible, I'm told, by U.S. uh, officials with both losses in heavy equipment and in personnel. One of the officials saying those losses are, sadly, significant. And Jim, tell us more about the kind of equipment that Ukraine is losing as they attempt this advance. Well, as you know, one of the big focuses beyond long-range missile systems, artillery, etc., has been to supply Ukrainians with armored personnel carriers, including the MRAP, you and I, rode in these in Afghanistan, Iraq. They, they are built specifically to protect troops against mines, other forms of attack, but they can be vulnerable. The U.S. has provided hundreds of them to the Ukrainians, 
And I'm told that some of these have been lost in that initial push, as well as other armored personnel carriers. Now, to be clear, that initial push is not the only push. The Ukrainian counteroffensive, long expected, anticipated, is expected to come not just towards Bakhmut, but other targets where Russian forces currently occupy. I'm also told that these initial losses are not expected to uh, define the success of this counteroffensive, Jake. That is, this was expected to be difficult. It is just beginning, and U.S. officials have high hopes for what the Ukrainians can accomplish. All right, Jim Shudo, uh, thank you so much. For, appreciate it. Moments ago, CNN's Caitlin Collins spoke exclusively with U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak about his meeting with President Biden and Putin's brutal war on Ukraine. You can see that tonight on CNN primetime at 9 p.m. Eastern. Now to southern Ukraine. President Volodymyr Zelensky visited the port city of Kherson today to survey the extensive damage from the catastrophic dam breach earlier this week as both Russia and Ukraine continue to blame each other for the deadly deluge. A top Red Cross official says displaced landmines floating in the water are a, quote, big problem there. CNN's Fred Plaikin is in Zaporizhia as Russia claims to be thwarting Ukrainian attacks in the south. Breaking news on Kremlin-controlled TV, claiming Moscow's forces are facing massive attacks in southern Ukraine. Ukrainian forces attacked with NATO tanks and light-armored vehicles. Our army has fought off these attacks. Russia's defense ministry releasing aerial videos like this one, allegedly showing their forces targeting advancing Ukrainian formations in the Zaporizhia region. Moscow also claims to have taken out a modern Western anti-aircraft radar system close to the front line. On a visit to an arms depot, Russia's defense minister urging faster weapons deliveries. The enemy tried to advance today, he says, so this equipment is needed. Let's hurry up. While the Ukrainians have not confirmed offensive operations and CNN can't independently verify the specific Russian claims, U.S. officials have told CNN the Russians are putting up stiff resistance. Ukraine's leadership says they understand their counteroffensive will be long and tough, and they'll need lots of armor to penetrate Russia's defenses. They showed us this repair and modification shop where they fix up mostly vehicles captured from the Russians, including this modern troop transporter. Even with all the Western equipment that the Ukrainians have already received, they still have a lot less than the Russians do. That's why every tank and every armored vehicle that they can get back on the battlefield will be vital for Ukraine's war effort. That includes even seemingly destroyed vehicles like this blown-up armored personnel carrier, the project manager tells me. All this uh, vehicle we can restore and return to the units. Further along the southern front line, the situation in the areas flooded by the recent destruction of a major dam is deteriorating. Ukraine and Russia accusing each other of targeting operations to rescue flood victims. Ukraine's chief rabbi dodging for cover as shells rain down. To bring people over here from over the river and the Russian... Ter- oh, the Ukrainians say several people were wounded in Kherson as the authorities continue to fight to bring those stranded to safety. 
And Jake, whether it's a coincidence or not, it appears as though those shells came raining down on that area where people who were being evacuated were actually being brought on shore just shortly after the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky, visited uh, that area, unclear whether or not the Russians were trying to target him. Nevertheless, that shelling apparently went on for a considerable amount of time. The most recent info that we have is that eight people were wounded in that shelling. Of course, a traumatizing event, not just for the people who were wounded there, but of course also for all those rescuers who are continuing to go out there on the water and try and get people out of their houses while that shelling is going on. Some of the video that we've seen from Kherson certainly looks extremely scary with people there on rubber boats trying to evacuate folks. And then at the same time, those shells popping down into the water, a really difficult situation. It was quite interesting because Volodymyr Zelensky, after he visited that area, he said that he believes that the situation, as we heard, is catastrophic, but he thinks that the situation is even worse in the Russian-occupied areas. And he called for a swift and clear response by the international community, Jake. All right, CNN's Fred Pleitkin in Zaporizhia for us. Thanks so much. The unexpected ruling at the U.S. Supreme Court today that sides with black voters in Alabama. In our politics lead, a Supreme Court ruling that nobody really saw coming. A majority of the court today ordered Alabama officials to redraw their state's congressional map to allow an additional black majority congressional district. In other words, it's giving more opportunities for minority voters to elect the candidate of their choice and not have the black vote diluted in congressional districts. Two conservative justices uh, sided with the three liberals. With us now to discuss CNN Chief National Affairs Correspondent Jeff Zeleny and CNN Supreme Court reporter Ariane DeVogue. Ariane, most folks, most observers did not expect the ruling to go this way. Explain what happened. Oh, you're right. Look, the maps had only one black um, majority district, despite the fact that there's 27 percent blacks in the state. A lower court said that violates the Voting Rights Act, ordered these new maps, and the state went right to the Supreme Court. And everybody thought that this Supreme Court was going to really gut Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act. And instead, that is not what we got. Chief Justice John Roberts writing for the majority. Instead, uh, he left Section 2 alone. He ordered new maps. Uh, Basically, Alabama had said, these challengers, they can't take race into consideration in the early times of drawing these maps. And he rejected that 100 percent. Here's what he wrote. The contention that map makers must be entirely blind to race has no footing in our uh, Section 2 case law. It was so stunning. I got so many emails from voting rights experts who did not uh, and did not expect this at all. The vote, Roberts and the liberals with conservative Brett Kavanaugh all on the same side here. 5-4. Very interesting. Very interesting. Jeff, how does this ruling impact the political landscape, not just in Alabama, but but beyond? Well, in Alabama, first and foremost, as Ariane was saying, there's one uh, black district, which means there's one Democratic member of Congress. There are seven seats, so they're likely to get one more seat there. But um, the activists and Democrats I was talking to uh, today I believe that Louisiana offers an opportunity, North Carolina potentially as well, other southern states as well. Uh, and in a House where there is such a narrow majority, we're talking the number of votes on one hand, it is a big deal. Now, in North Carolina, there is a separate thing going on. Republicans are expected to gain some seats. So it's hard to say at the end of the day, um, in November 2024, after the election, what it's going to be exactly. But in Alabama, for sure, uh, Democrats are likely to get one more seat. But beyond that, it was an incredibly surprising ruling 
just because uh, everyone had assumed that the Supreme Court was moving so far in a conservative direction there were no boundaries, the Voting Rights Act was going to be gutted. That didn't happen. So just uh, one more example that Chief Justice John Roberts, I think, trying to uh, you know, hold the uh, court at least a bit more in the middle. Uh, and uh, Ariane, uh, Chief Justice Roberts not only sided with the liberals, he wrote the majority opinion. Right. That's why this is so surprising. As a young lawyer in the Reagan Justice Department, he went after the Voting Rights Act. Just in 2013, he wrote a big decision that practically gutted a separate section of the law. So this was not on anyone's bingo card. Nobody thought that Chief Justice John Roberts here was going to do what he did. That said... It doesn't mean that overnight he's become this huge liberal. We've got other cases. No, no, term. no. We've got affirmative action. Yeah. Uh, we've got uh, LGBTQ rights. But here, the liberals didn't even have to pick up their pencils and write a thing. They got exactly what they wanted. The Roberts, case. maybe as soon as next week, is going to vote to take away affirmative action uh, in, in college admissions. Um, Jeff, uh, it was 10 years ago this month that you were with uh, the late uh, civil rights icon, Congressman John Lewis of Georgia, when the Supreme Court... Uh, struck down a big part of the Voting Rights Act. Tell us about that. I was thinking about that today. Um, the, uh, the late congressman was watching this ruling happen, watching our friend Terry Moran from ABC News there talking about this ruling. And he said it, uh, you know, it put a dagger at the heart of the Voting Rights Act. So he was very uh, disappointed, very uh, forlorn of what was going to happen to the rest of the Voting Rights Act. Yeah. So you have to imagine that he was uh, smiling and thinking um, all is not lost with his uh, Voting Rights Act, of course, which he marched as a student. He was... Uh, he bled for. He was yeah. present. He did bleed for it on the, um, the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Alabama. So this was something, I guess, just a reminder that we don't always know. Yeah. Um, you know he always uh, talked about the arc of, of course, the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. Uh, it's, um, you know, certainly his supporters thought that today. It's not that it heads towards justice. It bends, bends. towards it bends justice, towards meaning justice. like yeah. it's an effort. It's right. some back and forth. As and back President and forth. Obama always said that as well. I mean, it's yeah. not a straight line. Yeah. Yep. All right, Ariane and Jeff, good to see both of you. He became a harsh critic of Barack Obama's time in office. He tried to help Senator Bernie Sanders run for president. And now Cornell West is launching a presidential bid of his own. And he will join me next We'll talk about why he thinks he's the best candidate for this political moment. Stay with us. In our 2024 lead, the field is growing in the 2024 presidential race with former Vice President Mike Pence and North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum entering the race. The total number of Republican candidates now stands at 12. This comes as two Democrats are challenging President Biden for the White House in the Democratic primary. That's RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson. And just this week, a third-party candidate jumped into the race, Dr. Cornell West, who launched his bid as a member of the People's Party. And Dr. West joins us now. So, Dr. West, uh, let me start with the obvious question. Uh, how are, are you running to win? Or are you running to get your issues of importance that you think Joe Biden is not paying enough attention to to the forefront? Well, I mean, one, my dear brother, that you always have a calling to win. You want to bear witness at the highest level of quality, integrity, and honesty that you can. So, yes, I'm trying to push toward the finish line. Why? Because I want to reintroduce America to the best of itself. And it's fairly clear that Brother Trump, neo-fascist gangster, not the best. Brother Biden, neoliberal hypocrite, not the best. I want the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr., Dorothy Day, Abraham, Joshua Heschel, and Edward Zaid, and Chief 
Joseph and Grace Lee Boggs and Luis, Luis Marino. These are those fighting for poor and working people. Both parties stand in the way of the empowerment of poor and working peoples. Both parties tied Wall Street, militarism, Pentagon, tied to Silicon Valley. What about the 60% of precious Americans of all colors who are struggling every day and month to put food on the table and are hardly doing it while the 1% is simply uh, tied to their uh, quest mm -hmm. for the luxurious life. American democracy, not just is at stake, the whole planet, brother Jake, you know that man with fossil fuels. And, and look, look at the debt ceiling agreement. We can make a deal with brother Manchin in terms of his pipeline that will do in not just working class people's spaces, but ecological collapse given what's going on on the East Coast. But we can't make a deal with him in terms of voting rights in regard to the filibuster. That's Brother Biden. We need something better. Where's the best of the country? Yeah. Not just the working people here, but around the world. Because the militarism abroad is something that I'm deeply concerned about, be it in Latin America, be it in Africa, be it in the Middle East. So I hear you, but these elections often do mm -hmm. come down to a binary choice between the Democrat and the Republican. Um, Dr. Lawrence Tribe, a Harvard University professor, as you, you were, tweeted... WTF, you know what that stands for. Does Cornell West really Ooh. want to help the GOP nominee win the way Ralph Nader helped George W. Bush defeat Al Gore in 2000? Please stop this foolishness before you really hurt the things you care to help, unquote. His fear, obviously, that you would sap away enough votes of progressives who otherwise would vote for Joe Biden and thus deliver the White House to the Republican, making things worse than they would be under Biden in Lawrence Tribe's view. Your response. Well, one, I mean, Brother Tribe, he's looking at the world again through these Manichaean views. You get either this or that, Tweedledee, Tweedledum, Frick or Frack. Neo-fascist catastrophe, neoliberal disaster, are disasters better catastrophes? Absolutely. But are disasters disasters? Absolutely still. So the, the idea that Brother Trump would reduce, I mean, Brother Tribe would reduce what I'm trying to do and focus on the this unbelievable suffering and social misery of poor and working people around the world to some ego vanity. I said, good God almighty, what are you doing? Do you actually think that the rich legacies of the figures that I talked about can be reduced to their ego vanity when they moved in the electrical political context? Part of the problem is, is people who believe it's either the Democrats or the Republicans have left out serious discussion of mass incarceration, left out of what's been going on around the world, 800 military bases around the world. From the vantage point of the West Bank, our precious Palestinian brothers and sisters, what does it look like in terms of the bombs dropped by the U.S. government by either party? Same is true with working people in other parts of the world. This is a moral and a spiritual issue. It's not simply narrow strategic thinking of neoliberals who view the world in terms of either Republicans or Democrats. Brother Jake, we will never defeat fascism, which is on the march. By milk toast neoliberalism. Neoliberalism will only be a caretaking postponement of the fascism. You got to get at the source of it. Mm -hmm. That's why I'm going straight into Trump country, my brother. I'm talking to some of my white brothers and sisters who are following the neo-fascist Pied Piper. I'm concerned about your suffering. Look another way. The words of Martin King, let us embrace one another by accenting our best. That includes acknowledging those who right now are on the other side. We want realignment. 
we want what my dear brother Clifton West calls a paradigm shift in American politics. That's in part what this is about, my brother. Let me ask you just a, a practical question. Where do the People's Party, where, where will you be on the ballot? Will you be on the ballot in Michigan? Will you be on the ballot in Wisconsin? Uh, I don't think the People's Party was on the ballot in all 50 states last time. Are you, are you hoping to get on the ballot in every state or, or even just the, the battleground states? We're trying to get on the ballot in every state, which means we've got to get the requisite signatures in each state. We are in process of ensuring to make sure we get on that ballot. As you know, People's Parties broke away from Brother Bernie's uh, uh, attempt in 2016. So we're very new at this in that regard. But most importantly, we just want to make sure that our fellow citizens get a chance to see what the best of America is about, the best of America and the best of any nation is about fighting for poor and working people, no matter what color, gender, sexual orientation, and not just confining it to the states. I'm talking about solidarity with Iranians dealing with fascist Iranian, uh, Iranian elites. I'm talking about solidarity with workers in Brazil. I'm talking about solidarity with workers in Guatemala. This is a international project, my brother. That's what Martin Luther King was concerned when he said the bombs dropped in Vietnam fall in ghettos and hoods and barrios and poor white sections. We have got a professional managerial class that has turned its back too often for the plight of the most vulnerable. That's my tradition. That's what I, this is. That's what this campaign is all about, my brother. So, Dr. West, I have a ton more questions, but we're out of time. You can see by the clock. Uh, come back. I'm going to just cut and paste, and we're going to ask these questions about your policies and your platforms next time you're here. Open invitation. We love we love having you on. No, indeed. Salute you, brother. You stay strong. God bless your loved ones, man. You too, as well, Dr. West. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh. Coming up, a former White House official interviewed in both the Biden and Trump classified documents cases with distinct differences in the lines of questioning. The CNN exclusive reporting coming up next. And welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, exactly what are you breathing in if you're in the East Coast? We're going we're to show you just how much smoke it takes to create the dangerous levels that we're seeing all the, all the way up and down the East Coast of the United States. Plus, the politics against transgender health care for children. 2024 GOP candidate Mike Pence made his case on CNN last night. We're going to protect kids from the radical gender ideology and say no chemical or surgical gender transition before you're 18. We're going to talk to a conservative Republican from Ohio who has a transgender child and talk to them about what Mr. Pence said. And leading this hour, Donald Trump's legal team standing by for a possible indictment after the former president had told he is the target of a federal investigation. Let's bring in CNN's Caitlin Palance in Miami, where a second special counsel grand jury has been meeting. We also have with us CNN senior justice correspondent Evan Perez. Evan, uh, what's the significance of special counsel Smith deciding now is the time to inform Trump he's the target of his investigation? Well, Jake, uh, you know, the fact is that Donald Trump has known for months that he has been under investigation and uh, prosecutors had the option to notify him much earlier. 
that he was the target of that investigation, given the fact, obviously, that they did a, uh, a, a search of Mar-a-Lago. But they chose to do that only in recent weeks, which tells us a lot. It tells us that they are near a decision to bring possible charges against the former president. Uh, obviously, uh, Jack Smith, the special counsel, works under uh, Attorney General Merrick Garland, who could at the last minute decide to intervene. But what this tells us a lot, and, and I think the reason why you see uh, the Trump lawyers uh, very concerned, is that this signals that the special counsel uh, is, is heading towards an indictment. And the question is, you know, when that indictment might come, uh, who else might be under it? And certainly the former president should uh, believe that, you know, at this point, he has the option to go to the to the uh, prosecutors and say that he wants to speak to the grand jury to present his own evidence and to try to persuade them at the last minute that they should not bring that case. We do not expect that Donald Trump will do that. Jake. No, we don't. Uh, Caitlin, the special counsel's enlisted a second, <clears throat> pardon me, second grand jury, this one in Florida. Uh, to examine and gather evidence in the classified documents investigation. What does that mean for this overall probe? Well, Jake, uh, it could mean a lot of things. It could mean they still need witnesses, that they're trying to nail down the evidence, or it could mean really that we are in the final days of the grand jury activity here. So coupled with that target letter, uh, we are now watching this unusual turn of this case. A grand jury in Washington, D.C. had heard nearly every witness that you could possibly think of for months and months. There was Evan Corcoran, the former defense attorney of Donald Trump, compelled to go to that grand jury twice and talk about his uh, discussions directly with his client, Donald Trump. We also heard about Mark Meadows, the chief of staff at the White House, who was also involved uh, in some of the document issues after Donald Trump left the White House and had that book that was being prepared uh, that he was writing as an autobiography where Donald Trump spoke uh, to his ghostwriter and some others about uh, a document, a plan, a classified document for a military attack on Iran. And so it is really hard at this point, Jake. We have we've tracked dozens of people going in and out of the grand jury in Washington, D.C. Now, two days in a row, we see the grand jury here in Florida coming in, or at least the prosecutors moving around that grand jury. A witness coming in yesterday who was around Donald Trump at a time he wanted to make a public statement about returning boxes to the National Archives, which he didn't at that time turn over everything he had in his possession. And so what the culmination of this will be or whether the grand jury has more work to do before the Justice Department can make a decision, that is the big question right now. Jake. All right, Kaylin and Evan, thanks to you. Now to a CNN exclusive, a key former White House official has told special counsel prosecutors that Donald Trump was well aware of the proper de declassification process. CNN's Zachary Cohen breaks his story. He joins us now. Zachary, what are you learning about this official and what did he tell the prosecutors? Yeah, Jake, this is a former White House official whose really whole job dealt with the declassification process and the classification process um, and the president's authority to do that. And this person met with prosecutors in the special counsel investigation related to Trump a couple of months ago and basically told them, look, the former president knew the process for declassifying documents. He did it the right way several different times while he was in office and gave them specific examples of those instances. Hmm. So it really is something that we've seen prosecutors in the time since that interview took place try to nail down on. They've interviewed dozens of witnesses, including senior former Trump officials who have talked about their conversations with Trump related to the process. We've um, seen them push for documents from the National Archives that really detail communications between those officials and Trump 
about declassification. So this is something, when you talk about intent, something that prosecutors have tried to narrow down. So this was an individual in charge of, or at least expert in declassification for both Trump and Obama. Uh, The Obama administration, the Obama White House, includes then-Vice President Joe Biden. The special counsel is investigating both men when it comes to mishandling classified documents. And this individual was asked about both, but you say there was a, a distinct difference in the line of questioning from prosecutors. Yeah, this is what really makes this witness unique. It's really the only one that we know of that has talked to prosecutors in both the Trump and Biden document investigations. And they described very different experiences when they were talking to the two teams. With Trump, it was very, you know, it was very aggressively focused on direct interactions with Trump. Who was having conversations with Trump? Who was talking to him, meeting with him specifically? The Biden prosecutors were more focused on process, logistics. How were the boxes packed up and moved to his home in Delaware? Um, this former official said that the vice president typically does not have any sort of a role in the packing process. So distinguishing between those two investigations. And my colleague Paula Breed has learned there doesn't even appear to be a grand jury that's been set up in the Biden investigation. So that tells you a little bit about the lack of activity maybe compared to what, hap- what has happened in the Trump investigation since. Very interesting. Zachary Cohen, excellent reporting. Thanks so much. Uh, let's discuss right now with CNN Sarah Murray uh, and former Trump White House lawyer Jim Schultz and former Principal Deputy Assistant Attorney General in the George W. Bush administration, Tom Dupree. So, Sarah, you have some new reporting about how the Trump team has been bracing for the possibility that he could be indicted on multiple fronts. Tell us more. Yeah, that's right, Jake. I mean, we are learning that even though Trump believes that he's done nothing wrong, he's told Mm -hmm. people privately he does believe he's going to be indicted in this federal case uh, when it comes to classified documents. But that's not the only one. I mean, he's also told people privately he believes he's going to be indicted in the criminal probe that's been ongoing in the Atlanta area, looking at efforts by Trump and his allies to overturn the 2020 election there. He's actually seemed almost eager to be indicted in that case, one person told me, because he believes it's a politically potent argument for him to take on the district attorney there who's an elected Democrat. And then, of course, we know he already has one indictment under his belt because he was indicted in Manhattan where he pleaded not guilty to 34 felony counts. Right. Uh, Jim, uh, this former White House official is telling prosecutors, this individual who, who was the expert on the declassification process for both Trump and Obama administrations, uh, telling prosecutors that Trump was was well aware of the declassification process. You worked in the Trump White House. Is that your understanding? And how problematic might this be for Trump? So I didn't work in the national security space or declassification of documents space. None of that while I was in the White House. But I can tell you this. In any executive branch, whether it's a governor or president, I've worked in both, uh, both in the governor's office as general counsel, and I worked in the White House counsel uh, in the Trump administration. Of course there are going to be protocols that the executive is going to get from his lawyers, from national security advisors, from everyone, and how to handle documents. So no surprise there that he would have had appropriate training. Whether he followed it or not is a different story. But And no surprise that he might not have followed certain protocols, right? This is the, it was the Donald Trump, right? So, I, I mean, I, I'm not surprised. I don't think this is, this is really all that significant, except for the fact that they were probably exactly what you said earlier, looking at perhaps intent. And then how did he do things differently then versus how he handled them at the end of the administration? And that's kind of what makes the Biden case and the Trump case different. Yeah, very interesting. Tom, you have a lot of experience Working in the Justice Department, does all of this recent activity suggest to you that an indictment is imminent? 
Without a doubt. Yes, absolutely. Look, prosecutors, the unwritten rule in the Justice Department is prosecutors don't send target letters if they don't intend to indict. While I won't say it's an 100% certainty, it's a 99% certainty. In fact, I'm hard-pressed to think back of instances where you would send a target letter and then ultimately decline to indict. So I think it's a near certainty. The sending of this target letter is not the first chapter in a book. It's the last chapter or the penultimate chapter. It's done at the end of the process when the investigation is complete or nearly complete. You've reached a preliminary conclusion. You're ready to move. You give that defendant a final, last clear chance to come in, plead their case to you. Maybe it deters you. Probably doesn't. But that's the next to last chapter in the book. And, and Sarah, sources are telling CNN, and there's no, this is no surprise, but uh, Trump's <laughs> team has been reaching out to his allies on Capitol Hill, the Matt Gateses and, and Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, to get him to defend him ahead of this potential indictment, a playbook he's run before. This is the classic Trump playbook. I mean, if you know that you are about to go through a negative news cycle, which, you know, people generally view if you're about to be indicted, that would be a negative news cycle. You try to think of how are you going to turn the echo chamber in your favor? And this is usually when we see Trump start blasting out fundraising emails. You know, they're already circulating these talking points, uh, casting aspersions on Jack Smith, and of course, reaching out to the allies, sort of readying them to sort of try to flood the airwaves, probably with notions that this is, you know, politically motivated prosecution, that Donald Trump is a former president, shouldn't be prosecuted in the first place, that somehow this is really a scheme that's being crafted by Joe Biden. I mean, you know, we'll see what they, they put on the airways. But yeah, this is the classic Trump playbook. Do you remember a few uh, weeks ago when the E. Jean Carroll case was going on and Matt Gates uh, started tweeting about Tara Reid, that woman who accused Joe Biden Yes. Of sexual misconduct, mm-hmm. like back in his Senate days. Yeah. And, and then and then a few days later, what did Tara Reid do? Tara Reid decided that she would like to be a Russian citizen. <laughs> so these plans don't always work out exactly uh, in the best way. Jim, if uh, Donald Trump is charged, what do you think the timeline would look like? And could there be a trial before the 2024 election? I, I don't I don't see a trial happening before the 2024 election. I just don't. I mean, it, it would really depend upon the judge and it would be in Donald Trump's lawyer's interest to extend that out as long as they possibly can, especially as it relates to a federal indictment. Tom, so I, I, I think they're going to do everything they can to delay, delay, delay. Yeah. Uh, Tom, what do you think? So, you know, my sense actually is that this might move quicker than we think. And look, I agree that I think it depends in large part on the judge, but I think both the special counsel and frankly, even the Trump team do have an interest in getting this thing done sooner rather than later. The special counsel does not want this to interfere with the election more than it already will. It inevitably will. But if you have a trial in, say, the summer of 2024, I think that's kind of catastrophic from the Justice Department's perspective. So I think they're going to have to move quickly and then come next spring. If they don't have a trial date, they may well say, look, let's just punt and put this off after until after. Tom, the first debate, the first Republican debates in August. I mean, we're in June now. Just to remind everyone, we're in June. The first Republican debates in two months. Uh, The Iowa caucuses are in January. That's just over uh, six or seven months. I mean, we're already in the political season. Absolutely. It's going to interfere with it. Uh, No question it's going to interfere. But to me, at least, there's a significant difference between having a trial occurring during those preliminary run-up debates versus the final months of a general election when the entire nation's attention is focused on that race. And Jim, if the special yeah, there's no uh, go ahead, oh, sorry, Jim. Go. Yeah, go. I I, 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 believe, I agree. I don't think there's any chance that we're going to have a trial in that August, September, October of 2024. If it looks like it's getting to that time, it's going to be kicked down the road. It would have to happen sooner than that. It, probably sooner than most of the primary elections in order to be really effective in this. All right. Thanks to one and all. Really appreciate it. Good to see you. Republican candidates running against Trump are not holding back on their opinions about Trump's legal drama. How is this all playing out? 
in the race for 2024. That's next. Plus, the first steps on U.S. soil for Joran van der Sloot, the main suspect in Natalie Holloway's disappearance oh so many years ago. Time for our politics lead on the 2024 campaign trail. Republican presidential candidates are, are weighing in on the news that Donald Trump has been notified. He's the target of the special counsel's investigation and could face a possible indictment. Take a listen. It's a bigger problem whether he's indicted or not, because these are all self-inflicted wounds. It is very, very dangerous to see and or feel like the Department of Justice is being weaponized against anyone in this country. I, I would hope that it would meet the very high threshold for the unprecedented action. All right, my panel's here I mean, with me to discuss. Ramesh, what, what do you make of these different responses from Republicans? Well, I think one of the things that's going on here is that support for Trump in the Republican Party, although widespread, is actually less widespread than the view that some of these prosecutions are abusive and are excessive. And so the Republicans are aware that when Trump's been indicted in the past, it has worked to his political advantage. And they also want to appeal to not just the Trump voters, but to other voters who are kind of in the middle in the Republican primary. And, and Kristen, do you, do you think um, there's room for nuance at, uh, at all here? Like, for instance, oh, D.A. Alvin Bragg's uh, indictment in New York, that looks political. But Jack Smith, this looks kind of legit. Or, you mean for or the voters, for the Republican voters. Yeah, I, no, I don't think. That, yeah, I don't think. I don't think that's what's going to happen. I think that he's going to turn at least with the people that really support him. There's always the voters that are, you know, the swing voters or the suburban moms, that kind of thing. But for the average uh, hardcore Republican voter and Trump supporter, they're going to buy. I think they're going to see this as him being persecuted. Right, so, and especially when you have uh, also presidential candidates saying Yeah, that. well, it's also the theme of his election, right? Yeah. They're persecuting me. Audie uh, Cornish Pence is challenging his former boss in the race, and uh, in his campaign announcement made one of the strongest rebukes of Trump yet. I'm going to play that, the rebuke, and then what Pence said on Fox following the rebuke. Anyone who asks someone else to put them over the Constitution should never be president of the United States again. One of the requirements is that you vow to support whoever becomes the eventual nominee of your party. Will you commit to that? I will absolutely support the Republican nominee for president in 2024. So how do you reconcile that or is it? Well, first of all, remember, the RNC was trying to avoid like a bunch of bickering by saying if you even want to be in a debate, you have to make a pledge saying that you're going to support whatever candidate is there in 2024. But also Pence has always tried to walk this line between, gee, that was a bad day and let's put it behind us. That's not that unusual, right? And when people, when Nixon got pardoned, there was a lot of controversy then too, but it was the same argument. We need to put something divisive behind us. I don't know if that will work here, but I think it was a great line of questioning by Dan at the town hall, et cetera, about it not just being about Trump, also about all the people who would be prosecuted for being part of the insurrection that day. And even what's going on with Jack Smith is a good reflection of the fact that Trump didn't do anything in isolation. 
People helped him do all the things we're talking about, whether it's moving documents or, you know, hiding this information or that information. There are people around him who are part of that and kind of discouraging that kind of behavior going forward requires these investigations. Very interesting. We have with us uh, Ben Terrace of The Washington Post. He's got this great new book called The Big Break, where you look at how Washington changed during the Trump years and much, much more. One of the segments you write, quote, Trump's arrival in Washington represented a big break in how the city operated. He surrounded himself with outsiders, power structures reorganized around those who knew him or his family and those who could flatter and influence his base. He changed the way the game was played, only it wasn't actually a game at all. You say uh, Trump changed the game. Do you think any of his primary rivals, DeSantis, Haley, Christie, Pence, et cetera, et cetera, do you think any of them have any idea how to play the game as Trump does? Yeah, I mean, almost definitely not, right? <laughs> I mean, you look at, at, at Washington right now. This book I wrote, is it's two years of work trying to explore Washington after Trump. But what I found is there, there is no Washington after Trump. Like he's, he's around. The shadow right. of Trump is, is everywhere. And, you know, to, to Adi's point over here about um, Pence not being able to, to say, uh, I, I wouldn't support Trump, if he's the nominee, it looks like Trump is likely going to be the nominee. Not definitely. I wouldn't predict it. But if you can't even say that, then are you able to play the same game as Trump? Do you think Trump would say the same thing? I, I don't know. Yeah, the, the, the core problem with the, can, the Pence campaign is that the message is, I am very proud and honored to have served in the administration of this enemy of the Constitution. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> well put. But, but, I mean, isn't that also Nikki Haley's problem? I mean, I mean, and would have been Mike Pompeo's if he had run? I mean, like, the, these are people... Who are proud of their accomplishments, um, and and then but they say but like something changed after election day, right? Or like Ron DeSantis, they are saying something like he served his purpose and it's time to move on. It's time to turn the page. That's the kind of message they end up having to give because the frontal attack saying you know it wasn't a successful presidency or he should never have been president is one that very few republican primary voters believe but one theme from ben's book i want to bring up is this idea of the gamble and i know you must look at all of these candidates and see one big gamble going on if something happens to trump will i be the last candidate standing yeah um th- this book is filled with gamblers i mean it's filled with weirdos and exciting people and you know, all sorts of drama and tension, but everyone is making a bet of sorts, right? There's a character in this book who's making actual bets on races that he's polling, but there's also all these people who are working for Trump or trying to get rich or powerful or influential by attaching themselves to him. And so, yeah, they're betting, if this guy could win again, I can be part of that and I can be successful. Yeah, I mean, you got a lot of really sketchy dudes to trust you (laughs) and tell you their stories. They're really, really well done. Uh, do you think uh, Chris Christie will be the uh, assassin that all the Republican candidates wanted there to be in 2016, but nobody was willing to step up and take on Trump head on until it was too late? But now they actually have somebody, you know, it was all just like Jeb Bush was sitting there. Well, I'll wait for someone to <laughs> yeah. take out Trump and then I will become the nominee. Well, yeah. now they actually have Chris Christie there who's going to try to do it. I mean, it feels like that's his entire purpose, right. uh, that that is actually what he's doing. And if there's one thing he's good at, it's attacking people and being pugilistic and mixing it up. So I think that's what he's going to do. I'm just pretty skeptical that it's going to make that much of but a difference. But he was doing it on behalf of Trump for a long time. I mean, <laughs> yeah. I think that's the switch that's confusing. Um, that being said, nobody has tried it yet. 
We just don't have a really good example of someone taking on Trump on stage, face to face, in that kind of candidate forum and coming out for the better. Uh, I think that that's really the Yeah, question. I mean, that's what I was going to say. That I think that he, that's clearly what he's going to do. I just don't know that he, he could be successful well, we know at he's it. Because try. he's going to. <laughs> we don't know no, if I mean, he he's will. going to he attack him. He may come out with him. a new nickname. Yeah, he's going and, to attack you know, him. But the question is, is Trump going to make mincemeat of him or is it just going to. Nobody's going to care, right? I, it's just going to happen and everyone's going to ignore it. But I wouldn't assume that Christie's aggression will be exclusively directed at Donald Trump. And I think that would be a very unsafe assumption for the other candidates. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. Ramesh, yeah. I wanted to ask you because Pat Robertson, who founded the Christian Broadcasting Network, and he turned uh, evangelical Christians uh, along with some other players uh, like Jerry Falwell into a really a, a very powerful political force. He died today at age 93. Uh, how do you think he shaped the Republican Party that we know today? Well, there's no question that religious conservatism as an organized movement owes a great deal to Pat Robertson as a leader. And I'm sorry to say, although I I support a lot of the religious conservative causes, that he also helped to mainstream some rather kooky and fringe ideas, particularly with his turn to conspiracy theorizing about the Illuminati. Yeah, that was interesting. Uh, Thanks one and all for being here. And of course, don't forget, people, it's Audie Cornish Thursday. And that means you should not miss the new episode of The Assignment with Audie Cornish. This episode, she's taking a closer look at the effect of social media on kids and how families are fighting back against big tech. You should check it out wherever you get your podcasts. And then, of course, you can check it out on Sunday night when they do when there's a documentary version. I'm very excited to see that. We'll talk more about that uh, tomorrow. Coming up, East Coasters dealing with all that smoke. This next one is for you. We're going to help you decipher what those air quality numbers mean when you open weather apps on your phone. Don't forget to buy Ben's book, The Big Break. And our health lead, New York officials are calling the poor air quality caused by the Canadian wildfires, quote, a public health crisis. Residents are still being urged to wear masks in all of New York City's public schools. The nation's largest school district will have remote classes tomorrow. CNN's Miguel Marquez is near the Hudson River in New York. Miguel, has the air improved at all in New York since yesterday? It, it's improved enormously. It is still smoky, but not nearly as bad as, bad as it was yesterday. I want to show you. We're right on here on the Hudson. You can see the Statue of Liberty there off in the distance. It's probably a couple of miles from us, and you can see just that, that haze. That is not fog. That is not mist. That is smoke still in this area. But the smoke and the weather conditions that are causing it are still creating a massive problem for a huge swath of the country, affecting every from Wyoming in the west to Louisiana in the south, all the way to Georgia. Just an incredible amount of smoke. Uh, a couple of MLB, uh, uh, Major League Baseball games, were canceled or postponed yesterday. Another one today. Uh, horse racing at Belmont also canceled. As you mentioned, the schools here in New York City canceled. Flights have continued to be interrupted. There were some out of Philadelphia that were uh, interrupted today because that visibility is just so poor when the smoke gets heavy. Uh, the, the effects of the smoke, everything from coughing uh, and headaches on the, on the mild side to asthma attacks and shortness of breath on the more serious side. Authorities telling people to stay inside if you can, wear a mask, KN95 or N95 is, is the best. And if you have underlying lung conditions, very, very important to either use masks or stay indoors and try to keep out of the smoke as much as possible. When will it all go away, at least for the Northeast? It looks like in the next 24 hours, it will get even better than it is today. 
but it's going to be a while before those fires, just massive fires. We are hundreds of miles away from them, and you can smell them here in New York City still. Uh, just incredible to consider how big these fires are. Jake? Miguel, is New York sending any help to Canada to assist their uh, attempts to, to fight the wildfires? Uh, New York State is sending its firefighters uh, north to help Canada. The U.S. government also uh, calling up every federal resource they can. The president saying today that already 600 uh, hot shots and smoke jumpers are up in Canada working. Uh, New York State sending more as well. But it looks there are hundreds of fires burning in Canada. They're going to need all the help they can get. Jake? Miguel Marquez in New York, thank you so much. Meteorologist, meteorologist Chad Myers is, uh, is with us now. He's tracking this hazardous smoke. Chad, when people open their weather apps on their smartphones mm-hmm. and they see air quality numbers at 300 or higher, what does that mean? That, that means hazardous. That means you really need to be inside. doesn't matter if you're a sensitive group or not. That is for everyone. And I did see some numbers that were approaching 300, even some over 400 uh, on our map. So the number that we have in Atlanta right now is 70 outside. The number that I have in the studio on this PM 2.5 detector is 5. So that's 12 times better than what it is outside. That's why they say to stay inside. The air filters in your house just kind of all help out. Now watch me light one map and and watch this because this goes quick. I'm going to light one map and put this smoke near this detector and watch where it goes. It just starts jumping and going and going. And all of a sudden it'll peg 999. That's as high as it goes. There's not a one, so we can't get over a thousand. But that's from one match. And that's what these numbers mean. These over 100, really bad for sensitive groups, over 150 into 200, you really need to be inside as much as you possibly can. There are the pictures now. Visibility is getting better. It is getting better across a lot of North America, from New York City all the way down to Philadelphia. Even now from the the D.C. cam, I can actually see Virginia. And for most of the day, I couldn't see it. Our visibility around two and a half miles now in D.C. But still in that orange and red category for many, many cities, for millions and millions of people right now now and still in the 100 200 and there's some spots still around i think some of these numbers are a little bit old but still above where we think hazardous is this is a computer model this is what the model believes the smoke will look like what it is right now and where it will go over the next 24 and then i'll stop it in 48 hours for the belmont because that's where the horses may be running in all of that smoke the good news is a lot of that goes away tomorrow now it's completely gone by tuesday But this is still hanging around, not as concentrated, not as orange. But even by Saturday morning, there are still some people out there that will have that unhealthy for sensitive groups. But then what happens, we get a big low pressure to spin through here and push all of that away. That's what we need right now is just the wind to push it away. Doesn't help to where it's pushed, but most of it will go and pass the Atlantic Ocean and then fall into the ocean itself, getting rid of that PM 2.5, that stuff that just gets stuck in your lungs. All right, Chad Myers in the CNN Weather Center. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Moments ago, Joran Vandersloot arrived in the United States for the first time, booked in Alabama as he faces charges related to the disappearance of poor Natalie Holloway in Aruba 18 years ago. What led prosecutors to finally bring him here to the United States? That's next. And this programming note, CNN's Caitlin Collins will have an exclusive interview with the U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, who met with President Joe Biden earlier today. You can see that interview tonight on CNN Primetime at 9 p.m. Eastern.
And we're back with our world lead this afternoon, Joran Vandersloot, the prime suspect in the 2005 disappearance of Alabama teenager Natalie Holloway, arrived at an Alabama prison to get processed on a temporary transfer from his Peruvian prison cell. Vandersloot faces charges in the U.S. for scamming Holloway's grieving mother out of tens of thousands of dollars. CNN's Gene Casares reports for us from Birmingham. In this latest grisly chapter in the Holloway family's 18-year search for answers. Joran Vandersloat landing at Birmingham's airport on an FBI Gulfstream 550 executive jet in U.S. custody. His first steps on American soil in the hometown of Natalie Holloway. She was last seen with Vandersloat during her high school graduation trip to Aruba in 2005, later declared dead but her remains were never found. Vandersloat is the prime suspect. He is serving time in Peru's maximum security prison, Chayapalca, for a different killing, the 2010 murder of Peruvian woman, Stephanie Flores. Saturday, wearing a thick coat as he left the prison in the Andes, he signed papers and underwent medical tests before being transferred to Lima, in preparation for going to the United States. He faces U.S. federal charges for extorting Natalie Holloway's mother, Beth, out of tens of thousands of dollars in exchange for telling her where the remains of her daughter were located. Vandersloat said they were in gravel under a home's foundation in Aruba, but he later emailed to say it was all a lie. U.S. prosecutors say that amounts to wire fraud. Now he is on his way to answer the charges in a U.S. court. The fact is we have complied with both the presidential and a judicial resolution authorizing the transfer. Early Wednesday morning, Interpol took custody of Vandersloat and drove him to the Air Force Base near Lima. Something to say, Joran. Something to say. Joran, nada que decir. After smiling for a photo with Interpol agents, Vandersloat was handed over to the FBI for the six-hour flight to Alabama, a cell in an American jail, and a court appearance expected tomorrow. Joran Vandersloat is currently being held at the Hoover City Jail. This is a local facility in a suburb right outside of Birmingham. His arraignment, his initial appearance is scheduled for 11 a.m. local time tomorrow. According to court documents at this point, the federal public defender's office will be representing him. At this initial appearance, he will be apprised of his constitutional right. The indictment can be read, if not waived, by the defense. And he will have to enter a plea of guilty or not guilty. Jake? All right, Gene Casares in Birmingham. Thank you so much. Last night on CNN, Mike Pence argued why he thinks kids 18 years and younger should not be able to get any sort of transgender surgery or hormone treatment, uh, despite what their parents or doctors say. I'm going to get a response next from a conservative uh, father who has a transgender son. Stay with us. In our health lead, Vice President Mike Pence last night in our CNN town hall added his support to Republican efforts to ban trans kids from being able to get hormone therapy or puberty blockers or sexual reassignment surgery, giving state governments the power to overrule parents and physicians. I would tell them that I love everybody. I'd put my arm around them and their parents. 
But before they had a chemical or surgical procedure, I would say, wait. Just wait. I mean, there's some people, maybe there's exceptions, but most people before you're 18 years of age. There's a reason we got that cut off for all kinds of categories in our society. You just don't really know what you want in life. You don't know who you really are. The U.S. this year has seen a record number of bills targeting transition treatment for transgender minors. House Bill 68 in Ohio is among these efforts. We were surprised when we heard this testimony uh, recently in an Ohio State House hearing from a self-described anti-woke Christian Republican who has a transgender son. The people wanting to ban gender-affirming care have no idea what it is like to be transgender or to have a transgender child. This is not something that's done on a whim. My son has a masculine soul, masculine soul, and he said he's felt this way since he was five. You've got to go easy on this. This is a terrible bill. And with us now is that father, Ohio Republican Rick Colby, and his son, Ashton. Thanks, both of you, for being here. Ashton, let me start with you. Former Vice President Pence says most people, uh, Pence says most people don't know who they are before the age of 18, and that's why he doesn't think any transition related care should be allowed before then, regardless of what the individual or their parents or their doctors say. What's your response to that? I would be sure that he would be offended if I asked him if he knew he was who he was at his at 16. He knew he was a man at 16, a young man. And so everyone does really know at that age. And Rick, um, Ashton uh, transitioned as an adult. What was it like watching Ashton try to fit in as a, as a girl and a young woman? Well, I would defer to Ashton for more detail on that for his personal experience, but I know as a, a dad that he was full of inner turmoil uh, when he was female. And I racked my brain to try to find an answer to what it was and eventually found out when he was 19, he was at college, he was near suicide and did not see a path forward as a woman. So we brought him home and we started therapy, started therapy. And that's when he told me one day, we were driving back from somewhere in the driveway. He said, Dad, I think I want to be a man. And I didn't have a frame of reference for it. But I said, Bud, you don't have to do this alone. We'll be in this together. We'll get the best care. We'll figure it out. And then I went inside the house and I thought to myself, what is the best care? I don't know. This was 11 years ago. It's very different then than it is now. It's much better now. And Ashton, um, we had a a, a trans uh, kid on the show a few weeks ago from Idaho. When I asked this question about why does this have to happen before 18? uh, And that kid said, because I would have committed suicide. Um, is, Is that honestly what it comes down to if you had not been able to transition? Yes, I really felt like that um, it was either going to be life or death, and I chose to stick around. Luckily, I I was able to be supported by my dad, and I was able to transition early at 19. And I've known since I was a young person, and I only wish I would have known that transitioning physically through hormone replacement therapy or getting surgery was available to me. I would have, uh, I didn't know about it over a decade ago. Now we know. And I am, I mentor a lot of these young people 
and I'm fielding their questions and their concerns, and they're terrified of these bills, and they lay in bed at night, and they wonder if they should end their lives, and I have to tell them, your life is worth living, and even if it takes some time, like, I believe the world's getting better, and and I'm so glad I was able to transition as young as I did. And Rick, you, you know, you describe yourself as a Christian Republican uh, who's anti-woke. Um, I imagine you have friends and acquaintances who would put themselves in the same category. What's their response uh, when you speak so personally uh, and so forcefully about why this legislation is wrong? Well, I think it's important to make the distinction among Republicans that there is a s- small faction that is anti-trans, and then there's a middle ground of Republicans who may not publicly say something in support, but privately behind the scenes, and, and I know a lot of them, will, will ask how Ashton is doing. They you know, see my posts on social media, and they're supportive. They're generally folks that want people to be the fullest expression of who they can be and, and have economic opportunity, economic opportunity for young people and not throw roadblocks in front of them. So I'm not so sure that's uniform among the Republican Party. The Republican Party, ideally, is about the individual and not groups and the individual achieving all they can achieve in life. So I think there's more support um, than people realize. And I, I got involved because I was watching this being portrayed as some kind of... Uh, left-wing thing, that there were left-wing parents forcing their children to become transgender. And that's not the case. That's far from reality. Ashton, final word? I'm going to say the final word to the young people that are out there that are suffering. You are loved, even if you have to have a surrogate dad like him. There are people out there who support you and love you, and your life is worth living. Rick and Ashton Colby, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up next, a panicked period for parents and the bravery of their 10-year-old daughter lost in the woods for more than 24 hours, plus a busy evening coming up in the Situation Room. Let's check in with our old friend, Wolf Blitzer. Wolf? Jake, we've got lots of news coming up in the Situation Room, including the president's top national security spokesman, John Kirby. He'll join us live with new U.S. assessments of the war in Ukraine. And that catastrophic dam collapse that unleashed a flooding disaster there. Is the U.S. prepared to do more to help flood victims as Ukraine accuses Russia of shooting, shooting at rescue workers? And where does that Ukrainian counteroffensive stand right now? We'll discuss all of that much more coming up in the Situation Room right at the top of the hour. International lead, an incredible story of bravery and survival. Ten-year-old Sangala Mashwani was found alive after spending more than 24 hours by herself lost in the woods of Washington state. Her family was spending this past Sunday in the Cascade Mountains. And Sangala was playing in the woods when she suddenly realized she was separated from her family and she was by herself and all alone. Her dad said it happened in an instant. Crews launched a massive search in the steep and rugged terrain, Sangala hiked downstream through dense forest, the 10-year-old saying she knew it was the right thing to do to follow the river. After spending the cold night by herself alone, Sangala was found on Monday, about a mile and a half away, with only minor scratches. The brave girl said she was not scared and just wanted to find her dad. And God bless, we're so glad she did. 
You can follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Blue Sky if you have an invite. And I'm back on the TikTok at Jake Tapper. You can tweet the show at The Lead CNN. If you ever miss an episode of the show, you can listen to The Lead. Once you get your podcasts, all two hours, just sitting there like a big order of EBA's pizza. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in a place I like to call the situation. We all do things our own way. And since the way that each of us sleeps is unique, you need a bed that fits you just the right way. Sleep Number Smart Beds make your sleep experience as individual as you are, using cutting-edge technology to give you effortless, high-quality sleep every night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $15.99. Save $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com.